everyone. Welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. In a recent post by Gong Sanchez, founder of Seed Table, Gons had noted that insect farming produces about 100 times less greenhouse gas emissions and requires very little resources. And what does that mean by actual numbers? For comparison, he says, a kg of beef takes 30,000 liters of water, 40 kg of feed, and 250 square meters of land. But for insects, you only need 15 liters of water, 3 kg of feed, and 15 square meters of land. So today, my guest is in the world of alternative protein, specifically insect farming. My guest is Kieran Olivares Whitaker, who is the founder and CEO of EntoCycle, which is UK's leading insect farming company. While traveling the world as a scuba diving instructor, Kieran witnessed firsthand the destruction of our global food production system is having on our natural world. One day, he quit his job and decided his life's mission would be to develop a more efficient and sustainable way to feed the world. In this podcast, I plan to find out more about the wonderful world of insect farming, Kieran's view on deep tech versus SaaS when it comes to mindset and fundraising, and how he plans to scale and to cycle. So let's get to it. Welcome, Kieran. Hi. Thank you very much for having me on today. So Kieran, I wanted to start off by asking you about the early phases of the idea. How did you go from seeing what was being done to the environment on your travels in Brazil, etc., to honing in on insect farming in particular? My background's in environmental design and it was actually a, a project as part of my dissertation. How can we be more resourceful with the resources we have? How can we stop throwing away precious materials that we use? And the food sector was a particularly a wasteful one. In the Western world, it's a quarter to a third of all food is wasted that is produced. And if you actually look from fork to fork, that's a much higher number. There are very healthy food and vegetables that have been dug back into the ground or thrown away. Look at the, the wonky veg, how that's kind of growing up as a sector. So it's, it's just an obvious solution. How can we get rid and how can we work on these waste sections? So that was like the, the real background. As you said, I, I became a scuba diving instructor and that led me to live in some of the most beautiful parts of the world, Indonesia, India, Thailand, Malaysia, Honduras, Brazil, Mexico, etc. And it's the same story everywhere. Dead coral reef, there are no fish left in the sea. No one can tell me there are because I've seen them with my own eyes. And mass deforestation to grow what is often monocultured crops, predominantly for kind of animal food. So my challenge there was one side you have the waste issue and on the second side you have a, a food production issue. And it just made such perfect sense that insects, which are a natural part of animals' food, two-thirds of the world already eat insects. Uh, they are a high-quality, organic, locally produced protein source that can be fed on food waste. That was a no-brainer. That was the origin of the company. It involved me building out some kind of early stage technical pilots and my parents' extension, um, moving to Brazil to build a larger R&B facility for eight months over there, even though my Portuguese is pretty much zero. And once we had the process, the biological side really nailed down, it was time to bring it back and build a company wrapping around the process and, and technology that I designed and came up with. And so that's the origin of Entercycle in terms of its birth. We're YC funded, so we have backers from Silicon Valley all the way from Europe, UK, over to Japan. We've built two pilot facilities in London, and we're now building Ento Farm One, which is the UK's first industrial insect factory, producing close to two and a half thousand tons of insect 
protein a year. You've told me all these numbers and it makes such logical sense in terms of organic protein. It can be grown everywhere. It needs a food waste to grow and it's a really good protein. It all makes sense intellectually, but I can't say if I go to a, a supermarket and I see plant-based protein and I see insect-based protein, I would ever think of picking up the insect-based protein. So I'm curious, why is there so much funding going into insect farming? Because I don't see it available in my local food store. There is a transition, isn't there? There is both from a regulatory point of view and a market forces point of view. Within the space of the last two, three years, you've gone from having no products, no brands on the shelves globally to now you have multiple pet food brands growing. As people get more pets, especially here in the UK, but across Europe, North America, and in the developed world, people are caring about their paw prints. So we've gone from one company two years ago to kind of over 100 now across Europe. I mean, that's probably mirrored by 1,000 if you look globally. The second market entry is you're now already starting to see is in the aquaculture sector. There are products on the shelves, which are insect-fed chickens for eggs. The products are coming on the shelves. You can now start buying insects as a snack from Sainsbury's here in the UK, insect burgers across Europe. It, it's coming. It took quite a process to get the alternative plant-based products on the market. But then as soon as the first one comes on, it's just a massive ramp up. And that's what we're starting to see now in the insect sector across all of the market potentials. So that includes pet, animal and human. I imagine that regulation would be a big driver for how much adoption insect protein gets in the market, whether it's for food, for pets or for humans. I read that EU declared millworms safe for human consumption. Where are we in terms of regulation when it comes to insect protein? Insect protein was regulated as a protein feed in 2017 for the pet and aquaculture sector. Europe, against the normal run of the grain, first to move. Why are we first to move? Because we are kind of 85 to 95% dependent on protein imports. We may farm the animals here, but all of the protein products required pretty much come from the international market. And most of that comes from South America. So soy protein, fish meal from Brazil, Argentina, or off the coast of Peru and Chile. And that has massive ecologically effects because those are the products that are heavily industrially produced and then shipped all over the world, including to Europe. So Europe moved quickly in 2017 into those first markets. Uh, as of earlier this year, the European Commission has already said that chickens and poultry will be allowed to be fed on insect-based products uh, as of kind of next year. And you're already seeing that trajectory also for the human market. So insects two years ago were considered novel protein. And then kind of the first insects, such as crickets, were given permission in 2019. The second wave of mealworms were given permission in 2020, 2021. And you're now going to see the third wave, which is black soldier fly insects, likely next year. And so when we're talking about the product markets, I think it's quite important to say here, you have different products for the different markets. I don't expect people to be eating insects, a whole insect, but that is a perfect product that goes into pet food. And, and so we are able to create these different product markets to tackle these different market opportunities. Very interesting. Black soldier fly. Tell me a little bit about how do you actually do insect farming? What does it take to farm black soldier flies and create proteins out of them? I'm really curious. You have two processes, like any farming. You have the breeding of new generations. So that is a circular process where you are taking the best of the best and breeding them on again to produce more populations. We use 2% to recirculate and repopulate. 98% is then used as a protein production. And that's a linear process where feedstocks such as waste come in, are fed on juvenile larvae. They are then fattened up from a couple of millimeters up to two and a half centimeters. 
at which point they are then separated from the fertilizer or the frass, if you want to be technical. It's a very high biofertilizer product, but that is a different market. The insects themselves are then quality control step killed, uh, and then they are then either sent as a fresh product or they are then further processed into protein meals. So you've got that circular process, which I'll just touch on again. It's really easy to farm insects badly. You know, you can produce a half ton, maybe one ton in a very manual way. Then when you start talking about having one, two, three billion in the production system, our approach and our USP and our patents is all based around computer vision technology for the entire life cycle. So we are able to count and quantify insects in real time using the best of ag tech and computer vision technologies to manage and maintain, which means we can have smaller insect populations, which means we can have smaller factories that are more efficient in producing protein. When you think about insect farming and production at scale, what are the challenges in this specific market? You have a huge amount of challenges which we have mastered. Do you have first of all the biological? How do you manage? How do you optimize production? Similar, if you think a chicken from the 1950s was of a certain size, and that's now tripled almost uh, to today. So you've got just that biological level of efficiency, feed conversion ratios, egg laying ratios, mating efficiencies, time of speed in production. So they are all these small trigger points that you have to optimize for continuously. And again, you get to a point where as a human or even kind of traditional weighing systems are just not feasible. The ability to count and understand that when you have a billion insects in your system is vital because you need to know at the very beginning and the very end. Then you've got the technical. We are working with living organisms here. These are insects that grow from a grain of sand up to a fly that's flying around in a three-dimensional space. The ability to count and quantify those different aspects are really, really challenging. But again, is what we specialize in. The, the technical team that we brought in from the food sector, from the agri-sector, from the tech sector allows us to really lead on that front. And then the last one is the kind of the more traditional producing products to specification. The industries need the same product every single time. That then comes back to our technology, which has enables us to then control the system continuously, which comes back to our biology, which means we have to optimally know how to produce them. So you've kind of got this nice kind of forward and backward step when it comes to control. And I suppose that's the most important thing. All of our data points, all of our technology allows us to control the entire system in real time. So a lot of technology has been infused into the process to make it efficient. Exactly. I want to go back to one question. With COVID, the pandemic, which presumably the origins were an animal somewhere in China, has the perception against meat shifted? And what does that mean for insect proteins? Has there been a shift to more plant-based alternatives and veganism? And what does that mean in terms of the future for insect-based proteins? But actually, the pandemic probably proved a massive kind of boost to the industry because international supply chains were absolutely decimated, both from the pandemic, from increased climate change, the climate catastrophe, and things such as the shipping lanes getting blocked with tankers that crashed. This has all put massive pressure on the international supply chain. And so localism and securing your food supply chain is becoming even more important. So the ability to produce proteins to wean us off from an 80-90% import dependence to a production capacity here in the local region is actually even more important. And you are right. You are seeing a shift to a more flexitarian diet myself. That's exactly the kind of cho choice that I've decided to be as sustainable as I can be when it comes to my food choices. So that predominantly, you know, 99.9% of the time means it's, it's a vegetarian-based diet. But if that's not the macro statistics. If you look at the global trends, you have a growing middle class 
across the world who are, and rightly so, should be allowed to eat a westernized diet. We can't force this on people. What we can do is educate and help maintain a more sustainable and healthy production system. So last thing is that this is a local production system. And so we will be able to build factories around the world labeling sustainable proteins produced on food waste. The food waste issue is not going away. So you're always going to have this balance between how do you manage organic material recycling or upcycling and how do you manage sustainable local production? It sounds to me like it's not an either or. It's not like we have to go with lab-grown meat or plant-based protein. All of these can actually coexist and are complementary, right? Absolutely. People can move to plant-based protein. People can become more vegetarian. Then the food waste and the insect-based protein for the feed for their animals are all part of making everything more sustainable in the long term. There is no silver bullet. There's no one solution that's ever going to feed. What we need is an entire suite of sustainable changes, both from a choice point of view and also from a, a production perspective to cross the entire spectrum. In animal feed, for example, combining algae with insects is going to be direct for humans, whether you're moving into insects or lab-grown or plant-based. These are the solutions. Just having three or four portions of meat a day every day. Our grandparents didn't do that, but it's just the last two generations. It's not particularly healthy for us either. So kind of having a more conscious diet and helping middle class in, in the developing world, this is going to be a really important function. I know that there's probably room for a lot of different companies in this space because it is a new and emerging technology or market. But when you have a 400 pound gorilla in your space, like insect, how are you thinking about EntoCycle? and its positioning and winning in the market. How do you win when in a new space where there's already so many unknowns, there's a 400-pound gorilla, which has got all this investment and power, and another upstart coming along and trying to make a name in that market? How do you think about winning in this market? Very good question. So there's three areas to this. The first area is the generation, if you want to call it, of insects. So your first generation insects are your crickets and your, your grasshoppers. Now they take eight to 12 weeks to grow. There's a relatively slow time to grow an insect. And that's because of their life cycle. But why did people move into that space? Well, crickets are farmed in Mexico and Oaxaca or in Thailand and Cambodia. There's existing knowledge known about that. Then you had your second generation insects. So these are your millworms. Millworms traditionally are a pest species for grain-based products, so wheat, barley, rye. And there was some historical farming technology. People have used them as bird feed for generations. So they came along. Yet they still take six to eight weeks to grow. So you're still cutting down from the crickets and the grasshoppers, but it's still six to eight weeks. So you need the capex and the opex process to be able to do that. Then you've got your third generation insects, which is a black soldier fly they take nine to 12 days to grow. So the, your capacity, your speed to grow those insects when optimized means that you can have smaller, cheaper factories yet still producing a higher output efficiency. <clears throat> so that's one aspect. That's why you've seen, as you described, the 400-pound gorillas, they've moved into those first primary or secondary insect markets. What you're really now seeing is the growth in the black soldier fly market. And that is because ultimately the long-term agenda is these insects will eat food waste. They don't mind. They will eat any organic mm -hmm. residue as long as it has a nutritional value. And they can extract that nutritional value out in a safe way and then be turned in and created into different products. So the future you see here is black soldier fly not just going to be a food production system. It's going to be a waste management system. It's going to be a closed loop system. It will answer many different angles. Now let's dive into the black soldier fly industry. So again, 
you have maybe not two 400 pound gorillas, but you have a couple of young alpha males who are already, you know, to, to, to follow on the same analogy, who are moving into this space. There are very many different ways to farm insects. So the generation technology that's coming through, what we have today will be very different from what we have in 10 years. So you see, again, your first generation black soldier fly companies really going for big mass volume, but quite low efficiencies. So when I talk about low efficiencies, I'm talking about how many eggs does each female lay? If you can double your female production of eggs, you can then half the size of your breeding system, which means you have lower capex and opex. And, you know, we are still only just in the natural variants of insects. We're still very low. Then you go into your feed conversion ratio. How many insects do you dose to the right nutritional profile of food waste? That's really fundamental. If you get that right, you can start driving up your feed conversion ratios. So all of this can only be done using the latest technology. And that's exactly where we step in. So using computer vision technology to really master all of those areas, efficiency in breeding, efficiency in egg laying, efficiency in bioconversion, efficiency in population control. And it's all that technology data led. We, we have a very much a dual business model. The UK, where we're leaders, is a build, own, operate. We will look to build facilities and meet markets into the kind of higher value. They said we'll be producing kind of 2.2 thousand tons of insect protein. We already have offtake agreements for 1.5 times, and that number is climbing by the day because you've gone from one company in each of the industries in the last two years to 10, 15, 20 across the range. And what do they need? They need local produced products because that meets the market demand. But internationally, we very much see this as a licensing opportunity. So we are working already with customers to put our technology into facilities. We don't see this as a joint venture. We see this very much as a traditional sell and license of technology. This market is going to be 60 million tons of protein short. Even if you take together all of the larger players in the alternative protein space, not just the insect space, we're not even a half a million tons of protein production. There is massive room to grow in this market because nobody's going to win it because it's just it's too big a market opportunity and too big a risk. Second of, we have strategy for the UK and internationally that's different to our competitors. So we feel very confident in our technology, which will be enable us to license and lease. Well, sounds really exciting the way you've put it, Kieran. So tell me, is investor money just pouring into this sector? What was it like when you started looking for funding at various stages? I think you've you've mentioned insect farming and what you're doing is not just about biology. There's biology, there's technology, there's data science, there's a lot of different disciplines that are coming together in what you're doing. So talk me through how you went about funding and the difference between a deep tech type of venture like yours and SaaS funding, the mindset and the fundraising. I can give you two views on it. So there's our journey and there's the general journey. Most of the investment community mainly wish to invest in fast returns. That's where SaaS, that's where apps, that's where software really comes into its fore. But as you are now seeing more and more investors, whether that's VCs, corporate venture capitalists, family offices are now really starting to step up into what you want to call deep tech or industries. So for us, there's been two parallel sources of funding that have been really important. We obviously have a longer R&D process and you can't just type out a new piece of code and update your app. Uh, overnight and check it out on a few hundred customers. We have to build, test, take apart, build, test, take apart a physical process. Our research and development does take a considerably longer time. So we have been very well placed to secure non-dilutive funding in the form of grants from the UK government, European Space Agency, and our Scottish enterprise because technical innovation hardware has that hump that you have to get over. So we've both raised private capital 
and been very strong at raising non-dilutive funding for R&D development. Our seed round was just under $2 million, thanks to getting into Y Combinator as one of the earlier, not the first, obviously, but one of the earlier ag tech, food tech, biotech companies. You almost had to do a double seed raise because we secured quite a lot of non-dilutive funding. How did you go about getting that? Like you said, you did UK grants, innovation. How did you go about finding the right avenues to raise money from? It was, it was all an internal learning curve. You, you see that there's a grant available that covers approximately the area of innovation you're developing in. You, you write it up, you submit it, you, you fail, obviously, the first time. You see the feedback, you see what they're more after, you work with more partners, and then you actually learn that there's a process to this, not only what they're looking for, but how you explain yourself. So it's not the most fun journey, having to secure non-dilutive funding, but it's very important because, as I said, we have these longer timelines. And so the, the likes of insects, especially in the French uh, ecosystem, the, the government has been absolutely fundamental to underpinning their progress. They've invested four, five, six, ten times the amount into their companies that we have, which has then really attracted the private investment. So we've definitely gone down that process of securing non-dilutive funding that gives us that technical development timeline. And then on the back of that, go out and raise venture capital. But I think the really interesting thing as you start moving forward is that these factories are profitable from day one. The interesting part is we will then have an inflection point where we'll be able to just raise traditional debt to build new facilities and or uh, license technology because that is the more traditional. That's why Enterfarm 1 is so important. It proves our technology at scale. It means that we can enter all of our markets. And this is a great shout out for the UK. Very cool. Is there any advice you would have for other entrepreneurs that are in the deep tech space in terms of fundraising? Non-dilutive funding is very important because it gives you that wiggle room. Okay, fine, you have hurdles to negotiate afterwards, but in reality, that is why a lot of European funding has been provided is because they know there's that hump. But one piece of advice is whatever you think, times it by or times it by two or three. I think in the hardware kind of tech, but deep tech world, times that by four or five because it just it just takes that much longer. And I think the second one is it's not just to this industry, but your initial plan is never going to be the one that you, you, you get to. Your first market opportunities, as you're building, developing, the market evolves and you need to keep flexing to that. So whether it's size of technology, development of technology. And the last thing I'd probably say is that IP protection takes a long time. Really getting a deep portfolio of especially patents, but also know-how, it just takes that much longer. So you really have to be prepared to, to weather a longer storm but ultimately, what is most deep tech now diving into an ag tech? It's helping to solve the climate crisis. It's helping to solve these big global issues that we're facing. And so I think as long as you really believe in what you're doing, it makes it a lot easier. I can't imagine getting out of bed to build another, another SaaS platform that helps more people buy more stuff. There are niches within that, but it's just not that exciting or that interesting. Well, these companies will probably not be around in five, 10 years time. We will need to eat continuously as long as there are humans. And so producing sustainable food, having more meaningful ways to recycle and upcycle nutrients is never not going to be a challenge. And so there's never not going to be a reason for a company like Intercycle to exist. What about you personally? The journey that you've been on, I'm sure, has been really exciting. You're a first-time entrepreneur. So tell me about a few things that have really helped you to grow, helped your company, and maybe whatever you bring to the table that you think are critical in making a venture successful. That's a very good question. Because obviously, as our company has grown and evolved, we've raised close to 10 million pounds to date. With The team is over 25. The first one is your role becomes redundant so quickly. In, in my case, I was, for lack of a better word, I was the biologist, then I was the entomologist, then I was a chief engineer, then I was the financial fundraiser. Every single time, 
as you grow, you need to go and hire someone better than you. It's hard walking into the room every time being the, the dumbest at the table. But that's kind of your main role is to always be the dumbest at the table. And I don't mean I'm myself, I'm stupid. I just mean I'm not especially knowledgeable in that particular field. And so just continuously learning or continuously flexing is a really important one. I think the one that really, really helped me was when you first start a business, you're quite often in silo. And actually meeting peers, meeting people who may not be in exactly the same industry as you, but at least at a similar stage that you can mm. lean on. And for example, Mass Challenge and Y Combinator were at the time to talk to other people who are going through the same stresses, even legal documents. The ability to get your hands on whether it's a, a contract or an industry, you could spend half a week trying to find that or you can just reach out to your peers and get that within two minutes. Yeah. But ironically, those relationships that you have then, they keep growing because often most of those companies are growing, whether that's introduction to new investors, whether that's business opportunities, it just continues to grow. So I think they're the two. One, learn to be flexible because you're always going to pretty much be wrong. But as long as you can keep working your way through, and then second of, make sure you've got a network around you. It's a very good example is I found it very hard to discuss with my partner about a lot of my work. And in the last year, she's also founded her company in a very different space, um, still in kind of sustainability. But now she understands. My brother, he's an entrepreneur and he told me the same thing. Five to six people meet once a month mm -hmm. and they're all in slightly different stages of the journey. And he said it, it just has been so incredibly helpful, not just in terms of getting a contract and, and some of the things that you said, but just in terms of talking about the stress and the tension that maybe you go through at different stages and being able to share that with someone who really understands it has been really helpful. I think that's really good advice. Okay, so we've come to the end of the podcast and I usually have a rapid round where I ask you some quick questions that require some quick answers. Okay, so I always start with, What's a book that's made a big impact on you, either as a person personally or as an entrepreneur? It's really hard to stay stuck in your head at the working environment. And you need to rest and recuperate to be able to get up the next day or the next month. So for me, I don't have a particular book, but you know, the Dune trilogies, for example, I know this, this is now coming out again in the cinema or any of these kind of books that just take you away. I think is the best way of putting it. So you just, you're somewhere else for two hours. You're not staring at your computer screen, your phone screen. Maybe if it's not a book, is it a podcast or movies? Yeah, I listen to a lot of podcasts, particularly around science. Anything from the BBC. I probably listen to 20 podcasts a week, so I can't really put my finger on one. Amazing. Okay. What about productivity tool or tip or hack? If you can switch off at night, because at some point during the course of a year, you can only throw so much energy at your job. And so just having a relatively healthy sleep life balance is I think really important I know it sounds like a lot of productivity hack but it really is because that's for everything absolutely what about a European city that you really like Nice in south of France is a really beautiful place which I was absolutely surprised by having traveled a lot of the world I mm. hadn't really traveled much of Europe even though it was on the doorstep it's got like French Italian vibe with mm. good, good food good wine it's on yeah. the sea it's warm yeah um, you have the old city, which is quite medieval. Nice was a massive surprise to me. Okay. Last one, a quote that is your own or that you just really live by that you share with your employees or just remind yourself. You just have to give a shit. By giving a shit, you can build a really good company. You can attract really good people. By attracting really good people, you build a better company. Give a shit about your friends, your family, your work, your job, the society, the world. I love it. I think we need to have a billboard with that quote on it. I think that's a really good place to end. Thank you so much, Kieran, for joining me on this lovely morning in London on this podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to seeing where you take EntoCycle. Thank you. Thank you for having me and have a great day. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. 